Word of God. So with that, let's go to 1 Kings. And you're there. I'm actually, I have my New American Standard um, version open. We're going to do something tonight a little bit different. And I'm going to read from the New Legacy Standard. And the Legacy Standard is Bible is basically the New American Standard. It's a project by the staff, the faculty rather, at Master's uh, Seminary. And I know, uh, I'm for those who are thinking, oh no, another translation. I get it. I get tired of the translations as well. But just keep in mind, and when it comes to translations, the, the good ones, we actually haven't had that many. Um, you got King James, who was, was excellent, stood, served the church so well for centuries. You had the New King James, which is an excellent translation, very, very good. I, I read frequently from it in my morning reading. You have the New American Standard, which has lasted us very well for about 30 plus years, more. ESV, English Standard Version, came out, what, about 15, 20 years ago now. It's, it's very similar in a lot of ways to the New American Standard. Um, and so, really, that's not very many right there. What did I name? King James, New King James, New, uh, New American Standard, ESV. That, that's, four, that's four more literal translations that I would commend to you. I'm not condemning the NIV, I'm not condemning the other ones, but I'm just saying they're really not translations per se. They are more towards a paraphrase. So this legacy standard Bible, John MacArthur, the staff there, what they wanted to do was to take the, the literal accuracy of the New American Standard and really it's virtually the same translation except for a few areas. One is that they, I really appreciate, and I'm not intending to read, I'm not, we're not making this shift to the Legacy Standard Bible, so I'm not doing that tonight permanently. Um, one of the shifts was, and I've shared this with you before, it, it, it has bothered me sometimes um, when I see that in a short passage, the translators have translated the same Hebrew word different ways, or the Greek word. You should translate it the same way within a chapter so that the English reader knows it's the same word. But the other significant change, and you're going to pick up on this as I read this, is that they decided in the Old Testament, instead of using capital L, capital O, R, D, in all caps, as all English translations do, to refer to the covenant name of God, which is Jehovah or Yahweh, they, they put Yahweh, which is what's there. I, I know it's, it's almost a little freaky to an English you know, speaker, to hear Yahweh, oh, am I, am I suddenly, am I in the right church? <laughs> but um, that is, and you can look in your English Bible and look in the Old Testament and look where it says, Lord, and then capital Lord, L-O-R-D. You'll see a little footnote, and they'll say that they're just using Lord to translate Jehovah or Yahweh. Uh, Jehovah, Yahweh is just a different way of pronouncing the same Hebrew letters, Okay. So the reason I'm going to read from the Legacy Standard Bible is you're going to hear the name of God, Yahweh. And, and it just, I think, helps us a little bit uh, understand the covenant nature of this solemn, beautiful prayer. And with that, I'm going to begin in chapter 8, verse 1. And I'm going to read through verse 61. And I know we've already covered about half of this. We're going to be looking especially at the second half. 
but we need to get the context. And this is such a beautiful passage, a beautiful prayer, that really uh, that's a, a significant portion of what I want to share with you tonight. It's just the reading of Scripture. This is, of course, after the building of the temple, the house of the Lord, the house of Yahweh. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of their father's households of the sons of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh from the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. I'm going to pause there. It's, this is the fall. This is like our September, October. Verse 3. Then all the elders of Israel came, and the priests carried the ark. And they brought up the ark of the covenant, and the tent of meeting, and all the holy utensils which were in the tent. And the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel, who congregated to him, being with him before the ark, were sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of Yahweh to its place, into the inner sanctuary of the house, to the holy of holies under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim made a covering over the ark and its poles from above. But the poles were so long at the ends of the pole, that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen outside, and they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses laid there at Horeb, where Yahweh cut a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Now it happened that when the priests came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the house of Yahweh so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. Then Solomon said, Yahweh has said that he would dwell in the cloud of dense gloom. I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. Then the king turned his face around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David and has fulfilled it by his hand, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel from Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there, but I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. And it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. But Yahweh said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who will come forth from your loins, he shall build the house for my name. And Yahweh has established his word which he spoke. And I have been established in the place of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as Yahweh promised and have built the house for the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And there I have set a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of Yahweh, which he cut with our fathers when he brought them from the land of Egypt. Then Solomon stood before the altar of Yahweh, before all the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hands toward heaven. 
And he said, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or upon earth beneath, keeping covenant and loving kindness to your slaves who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept covenant with your servant, my father David, that you have promised that which you have promised him. Indeed, you have promised with your mouth and have fulfilled it by your hand as it is this day. So now, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him, saying, You shall not have a man cut off from before me who is to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your sons keep their way to walk as you have walked before me. So now, O God of Israel, let your word truly endure, which you have spoken to your servant, my father David. But will God truly dwell on earth? Behold, heavens and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your slave and to his supplication. O Yahweh my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your slave prays before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this house night and day, toward the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which your slave shall pray toward this place, and listen to the supplication of your slave and your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Listen in heaven your dwelling place. Listen and forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then listen in heaven and act and judge your slaves, condemning the wicked, bringing his own way on his own head, and justifying the righteous by bringing him reward according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy, because they have sinned against you. If they turn to you again and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house, then listen in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you and they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, Then listen in heaven and forgive the sin of your slaves and of your people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk and give rain on your land, which you have given to your people for an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is scorching wind or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each of whom knows the affliction of his own heart and spreads his hands toward this house, then listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and give to each one according to all his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live upon the face of the land which you have given to our fathers. Also concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, if he comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and of your outstretched arm. So if he comes 
and praise toward this house. Listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you, as do your people Israel. And to know that your name is called upon this house which I have built. When your people go out to battle against their enemy by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to Yahweh toward the city which you have chosen and the house which I have built for your name, then listen in heaven to their prayer and their supplication and do justice. When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them over to an enemy so that they take them away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. And if they cause these things to return to their heart in the land where they have been taken captive and return and make supplication to you in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, we have sinned and have committed iniquity. We have acted wickedly. And if they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray to you toward their land which you have given to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the house which I have built for your name. Then listen in heaven your dwelling place to their prayer and their supplication and do justice for them and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you and give them over as objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive that they may have compassion on them for they are your people and your inheritance which you have brought forth from Egypt, from the midst of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your slave and to the supplication of your people Israel, to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you have separated them from all the peoples of the earth as your inheritance, as you spoke by the hand of Moses your servant when you brought our fathers forth from Egypt, O Lord Yahweh. Now, It happened that when Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to Yahweh, he arose from before the altar of Yahweh, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven, and he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be Yahweh, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one promise has failed of all his good promises, which he promised by the hand of Moses, his servant. May Yahweh, our God, be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not forsake us or abandon us, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, which I have made supplication before Yahweh, be near to Yahweh our God day and night, that he may do justice for his slave and justice for his people Israel, as each day requires, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that Yahweh is God. There is no one else. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly devoted to Yahweh our God, to walk in his statutes, and to keep his commandments as at this day. Amen. This is God's word. Let me pause and pray. 
O Yahweh, our God, for there is only one God, the same God to whom Solomon addressed this prayer is the same God we would, to whom we would address our prayer. Please teach us about you. What an awesome scene we have heard tonight. What an awesome God. What an amazing prayer. We ask that by your Holy Spirit who dwells in and among us that you might be pleased to teach us that we might glean much from this portion of your word. For your name's sake we pray. Amen. There's a lot here, but I think if you read it uh, several times perhaps, there ought to be a, a wow factor. It is, first of all, quite a scene. It's quite a moment. Historically, remember that out of all the peoples on earth who were condemned, remember, there were parts of the world where men and women were lost and and in rebellion against God and, and God in His justice passed over and there was no revelation Revelation that there is a God, but that revelation written in the sky on the stars saying that there's a God written on the human heart and the conscience was of no benefit to the peoples of the world except to condemn them for their rebellion. And God, in his mercy and kindness, chose a man named Abram, a pagan, from a little place in the earth called Ur and spoke to him, and revealed himself to him, and basically said to him, follow me, and I will be my, your God, and you will be my servant. Of course, Abraham did, and Abram became Abraham, and he had Isaac, and then Jacob, and the peep, Jacob's name was turned to Israel. And the sons of Israel were captive in Egypt, and then God blessed them and multiplied, as he had promised to Abraham, that he would bless and multiply his descendants like the stars of the heaven, the sand of the seashore. God did. God brought them out of Israel, but we're talking about hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. God promises them, I mean, He promised Abram and Isaac and Jacob that they would inherit the land. They're in bondage in Egypt for over 400 years. They they wander in the wilderness for another 40 years. And then, oh, do you remember the days of the judges? Those were great days, huh? Year after year, when it would seem like the even though God blessed Joshua and the people did possess the land little by little, generation by generation, they would, things would go well and then they, would, then they would fail as they turned from the Lord. Finally, God in His mercy and kindness raised up a man after His own heart, a man named David. Uh, a man of such stature and such significance that when uh, Samuel asked his father um, to show him his sons, the father didn't even didn't even bring David in from the field. That's how, that's how impressive David was in the eyes of men. But God chose him, set his favor and grace upon him. And David loved the Lord and followed the Lord and served the Lord, as you know. But David ended up being a man of warfare, and he did commit egregious sin against God. And in his heart for God, he desired to build a temple, but the Lord said, no, no. Um, thank you, but 
That's good. That's good. You want to do that, David? But um, I'll, 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 I'll determine who builds my temple. And again, I remind you, that's just unheard of in, in the modern world and in the ancient world. The one thing about idols and false gods is that proud men can, can uh, um, please themselves thinking that they did something for their God. They can build the house for their God, their false God, anytime they want. So God says, no, David, uh, no, you're not going to do that. I'll, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. You're not going to build me a temple, but your son is. And that inter-exchange is found in 2 Samuel 7. You know 2 Samuel by now, right? 7. You know that passage. It's one of those pivotal passages in the Bible. It's kind of like the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. You want to know 2 Samuel 7. It's a pivotal passage where God makes a covenant with David, his son. And, and we remember, I don't know if you remember, in the early chapters of 1 Kings, uh, it was a little dicey there for a while as to whether Solomon would even survive. Never mind become king. But God fulfills his word. There's that phrase here towards the close of 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 56 where uh, Solomon is recounting. And it's one of the themes of his prayer is the faithfulness of God, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel to his word. And there's this beautiful little phrase and I was talking to Krista about it the other night. It, I, think it's, I think it's my favorite Old Testament phrase. Um, and it's this phrase, not one promise has failed of all his good promises. And the word failed there, some of you have a little footnote there, it actually is the Hebrew word for fall. Not one of his words fell. I love that imagery. When God stands up a promise, and I know I've said this recently, but I, you'll hear me say it often, I'd be very happy when I'm an older pastor if the people I pastor said, he was always talking about that promise, the word of God, never falling. And, uh, but when God, think about it, when God essentially speaks to us, he takes his word as it were, and he plants it. And it never falls. It stands. In other words, it accomplishes that for which he sent it. When I was a little boy, uh, some of you remember, well, Maybe I've already repeated this well as well, but some of us are older enough to remember uh, Weeble Wobbles. Um, weebles wobble, but... <laughs> weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Oh, yeah. A great, great little toy. You know, a little, it's just this little character, a little, and you, you can push it or whatever, and it was weighted in the bottom, so it could tip over, but it would go back up and stand. Well, God's words are like weeble wob- weebles, rather, uh, in that they, um, they never fall, but they're unlike weebles in that they never even wobble. They never even wobble. So Solomon is recounting the faithfulness of God, and here is this occasion where God's promise to David has come true, and God has established Solomon on the throne. Solomon has built a temple, as God said that he would, and the temple is completed, and it's this awesome scene where they dedicate the temple, and back to verses 10 and 11, remember, I mean, as David, I mean, as Solomon is praying this prayer, he has seen, in a sense, the Shekinah glory of God um, in, in thick smoke. I mean, he's built this temple, the temple's beautiful and everything, but what's impressive about this scene is not the temple, it's the glory of God, the cloud that filled the house of Yahweh. This is awesome. This is incredible. Verse 11, the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. 
So this is the scene. And, and as he turns uh, to the assembly, uh, I don't know this for sure, but it would seem that this glory of Yahweh, this cloud is, is literally around the temple so that all the people can see, so that as, as uh, Solomon is praying, everybody is, is paying attention. <laughs> Because this God to whom he is praying is present. He's on the scene and everybody can know it because of the glory of Yahweh, this cloud. And the police, priests have had to leave the holy place. It's, it's an incredible scene. And last time we looked at the opening part of this passage, we emphasized the mercy of God and and the fact that He loves to dwell with His people. We looked at the character of God last time, His immensity, His faithfulness to His Word, for example, and and the fact that God has chosen to dwell among His people. I I entitled the last message on this chapter, The the God Who Dwells Among His People. And this message is the God who dwells in heaven. Well, which is it? Both. 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 But I need to qualify a little bit. It's true that God loves to dwell among his people, but it's very interesting. In the first half of Solomon's prayer, there's an emphasis that, verse 16, for example, that the temple was where God would dwell, yes, but that he, his name might be there. His name. And by that, not just Yahweh or the Hebrew letters for the name of God, but of course, God's name, his reputa- rather his reputation, his character, and yes, his presence. The fact that this God, the living God, would condescend. And Solomon recognizes this. It's a condescension for the God, a creator of all, to come and to permit himself to be met with in a particular place to be worshipped in a particular place. And, of course, this is necessary for us because here we're creatures. We, we are in a certain location. We, are, we live here. We don't live in outer space or in heaven, third heaven. We, we're here, and if we're going to talk to God, if we're going to meet with God, we have to know where to talk, who to talk with, and where to be. We, we're not spiritual in that sense. We're not like angels. We, we can't teleport to heaven where God is. If, if there's going to meeting be a meeting between God and men, especially sinful men and women, it's going to be God coming to meet with us. And here God is. He's, he's giving a lot, permitting himself to be worshipped and be found in this certain place. And he condescends. He doesn't leave heaven. He can't leave. He's, he's everywhere. But he is pleased to meet with his people and to permit himself to be worshipped in a certain place. Which is a reminder for us, just as an aside, that even to worship God is a privilege. It's a privilege that he even condescends to permit us to worship him. So this is an awesome scene, and God does love to dwell among his people. But in the second half of Solomon's prayer... Verse 27, if you will, and following, Solomon transitions from reflecting on God's faithfulness to his people, and he begins to emphasize the fact in humility that this God, the one true God, Yahweh, that he is a God who 
dwells in the highest heaven. In fact, verse 27, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house which I have built. There's an emphasis in the second half of the prayer, in particular, on the holiness and the fear and the loftiness of God. He is the God who dwells in heaven. And we forget that. The modern evangelical church, if you were to really start, I think, with one characteristic, it's we've forgotten what Solomon prays here, that God dwells in heaven. In other words, he's high. He's lofty. He's exalted. We have abused the grace of God and that He sent His Son and that we can be reconciled to Him. And, and we're going to end tonight thinking about that. It's true. There's no, we don't want to diminish it. But we've abused the grace of the imminence of God, the fact that God loves to dwell with His people by His Spirit, for those who are reconciled to Him through faith in Christ. And we forget that at the same time, He is God Most High. He dwells in heaven. This whole passage, Solomon is recognizing in humility that it is absolute grace that we can even even talk to this God and He hears us. There's so much in this passage, isn't there? There's so much, and I'm only going to touch on some highlights. I encourage you to reflect on it. I mean, for an example, God knows the heart. There's doctrines here, teaching here about that. This, it's such a rich prayer. But I think the dominant emphasis in the second half of the prayer is this, this truth that God dwells on high. And we need to remember that. The prayer has a specific historical background, not just the building of the temple, but it goes back further than that. We're not going to turn there, but in Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28, in those two passages, hundreds of years earlier, God had given to the people of Israel a a series of blessings and curses uh, based upon their obedience. They had a relationship to him, and remember, their relationship with God was always founded on grace. We have this error that we think of the New Testament is when grace starts. Grace starts at the beginning of the Bible. Every relationship that God has with any man is the foundation of grace. But it was, a, it was grace, but there was the principle, and it still is here today, that a man reaps what he sows. That hasn't changed. We tend to think that grace means that it's changed. No, the principle of sowing and reaping, we learn of that in Galatians, still stands for God's people. And God, because of who he is, the people of Israel were to reflect something of the character and the nature and the glory and the goodness, this good way that they should walk, the goodness of God in their obedience. And Moses is at pains to say, hey, hey, I'm paraphrasing, but don't say that this, this, these commands are like in heaven. They're, they're impossible. I mean, oh God, how, how can I not kill my neighbor? I mean, that's so onerous. I mean, <laughs> right? I can't steal? Oh, come on. 
I mean, come on, God. I mean, if you really look at the commands of God, they're, they're reasonable, they're good. They're only difficult for sinful men and women like us. So God's commands were good. They were not unreasonable. Uh, and yet, and, and so God said, if you obey my word, then you will be blessed. And it didn't mean that they couldn't make any mistakes. There were provisions for if they disobeyed. They could go to God. They could ask forgiveness. There was provision for sin, even under the old covenant. But the principle of sowing and reaping, if you turn from God, if you serve other idols, if you blaspheme the name of God, if you break his law, and you act as though you're not his people, and you're even worse than the people of the other nations, then judgment's going to come. And so Solomon's prayer here, he, he gives different scenarios as I was reading along. Like, for example, verse 31, if a man sins against his neighbor, or verse 33, when your people Israel are defeated because before an enemy because they've sinned against you. Verse 35, when the heavens are shut up and there's no rain. He's, in verse 37, if there's famine in the land. These are not scenarios that Solomon's just coming up with on the fly. These are specific judgments and curses that God had given in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. That if you turn from me, these are the kinds of things that will happen. Your enemies that you would have defeated, I will cause your enemies to chase you down and decimate you. If, if you turn to other gods, for example, the, the fertility gods, the Baals, the Ashers, or whatever, I'll tell you what, I'll take this land, which is my land, the land of Israel, I'll make it an absolute land of famine. And if you turn from me, ultimately, and you keep pursuing and keep pursuing, I finally will bring in foreign nations and they will haul you off and scatter you. Which is exactly what happened under the Assyrians and under the Babylonians eventually. So Solomon is praying in the context of, of these covenant promises and these covenant curses, blessings and curses. And he's in humility recognizing that God is in heaven and we are sinners. He's not presuming, oh, this is never going to happen. We don't got to worry about it. He's, he's in humility at this point. Oh, that he kept his heart. He didn't. He's recognizing that he and the rest of the people of Israel likely are going to sin. And so he's pleading with God in humility. Oh God, when we are stupid and rebellious and stiff-necked and do what we know we shouldn't do, because you've warned us, when we do it and when we begin to face the consequences, will you please, in your mercy and kindness, hear us when we pray towards this place, this temple? Now, it's, the humility is striking. The reverence for God in heaven is striking. There's no presumption here. There is a big difference between faith, which is bold, humble, trusting in the promises of God, and presumption. This is not a presumptuous prayer. Recognizing that God is holy, that He's not bound somehow to the people in, in, uh, um, by nature. It's a relationship of grace. And so he prays in light of the the glory of God and is the fact that He is most high. 
This is hard for us, isn't it? To, to live with God and remember that He is with us, that He indwells us by His Spirit, and at the same time to maintain a reverence. We have both, because God has revealed Himself to us that He is the God who loves to be with us, dwell with among His people, and He is still God Most High. We get in trouble when we forget. In, in closing, I want to just focus, maybe we can focus practically for a few moments just on prayer. There's so much here we learn about God. His promises are sure. Not one of His promises fall to the ground. But it is a beautiful prayer, isn't it? Maybe we could say, just to make a few observations. Number one, first of all, if we think about Solomon's prayer, and, and while we may not pray with this kind of ornate order, although we can read this prayer and make much of it our own, not all of it, but much of it, it begins with Solomon is very conscious of God. Conscious of God. It's very easy for us, and, and we can be guilty, and I have been, and, and I can, you know, just it's too easy for us to pray and to forget who we're talking to. Um, we live in a, in a post-Christian culture, but a Christian culture with history, and, and so praying to the Christian God, the God of the Bible, is, is once upon a time just kind of commonplace, and so we just kind of, you know, we, we can just throw around the name of God and I'm not suggesting to you that every time we pray, you know, we need to, like Solomon, get down on our knees. And, no, no, we, we can pray to God on our bed. And that's actually in the Old Testament as well, in the Psalms. We can pray to God driving in the car. We can pray to God walking. But whenever we pray, we, we ought to be conscious. Just, just try to pause. Who are we talking to? So that we don't use his name in vain. Secondly, we think about prayer. Solomon's prayer... Is, is bringing forth biblical revelation. What I mean by that is he's praying. It's not about quoting Bible verses, but he's praying to God in light of what God has revealed in his word. I have two Bibles up here. Too much prayer of, uh, well, let me put it positively. As we mature, we will bring more of what we're reading in our Bible into our praying not merely for a mantra or to have a neat prayer, but because our prayers and our thinking about God will be increasingly shaped by His Word. Does that make sense? So I, I, I do not want anyone thinking, oh no, I can't pray because I can't remember that Bible verse. We hear, we hear some people pray. We miss Charlie tonight. I just, just think of that. I'm, I'm going to say that a lot, by the way. And his prayer was just saturated with Scripture. And we think, oh boy, you know, I, I don't have that kind of memory. Well, uh, it's real. a lot of it was just the time that Charlie spent in the Word. But as we mature, we're going to, we're going to raid the Scriptures, if you will, the, the, the pantry of Scripture, and use it in our prayers. Not so that our prayers sign impressive, but because we only know God, we only know God based on what He's revealed to us. And so I encourage you to think about that, to think about in light of what God has done, but God has promised. God, you're like this. God, you've done this. God, you've said. In other words, your prayer leans on the word. 
uh, one-third reflection. Maybe we'll end with this in regard to prayer, and then I want to go to Hebrews chapter 8 in closing. Is that prayer involves our whole being. Prayer involves our whole being. This is very closely related to in re- revering God. And as I said to you, we, can, we ought to be conversing with God throughout the day. To be conscious of God throughout the day. But there are times when, like Solomon, verse 54, it engages our whole being. This is the king of Israel. And he's in front of everybody, kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven. He's engaging his whole being. And I'm saying this of myself as much as I am of anyone else. I think, I don't know how it happened in our culture. I don't know if it's because of our phones or I, I don't know. But we, we somehow, many of us struggle to engage our whole being in our praying. We can do it in other things. But somehow when it comes to talking to God, we struggle with that. And uh, Solomon was praying here with all that he was. This, this is no surface level prayer and then he's moving on to something else. There's a time for a quick prayer. Absolutely. Lord, Lord, please help me. I'm struggling. Um, but there's times for us to engage our whole being like Solomon. Well, I want to close with a beautiful reflection uh, in Hebrews chapter 8, but also a sobering reflection. So this was the old covenant people and Solomon's praying and recounting the blessings and cursings. I do remind you that the principle of sowing and reaping applies to us. Jesus in Revelation, don't turn there, but reviews the churches and he is going to bless them or curse them based on their obedience. Requirement of obedience is not a relationship that's lacking grace. It is grace that God calls us to obedience. But I wanted to close by looking at Hebrews chapter 8. So we don't have a temple, right? We don't have a, a place. We don't do pilgrimages to Jerusalem. The time is coming when, in, I mean, you're going to be. In, I'll be in Jerusalem, in the kingdom of Christ. Uh, you will too, at some point. But we don't need to go there now if we want to find God. So we too, as sinners, need to call upon God. How can we relate to this God who dwells in heaven? Because through faith in Jesus Christ, we have come to a temple, not on this globe, but in our praying, we can go to the very true temple and tabernacle in heaven. Hebrews 8, verse 1, the main point of what is being said is this, we have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister in the holy places and in the true tabernacle, which, is, which the Lord pitched, not man. A true tabernacle. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we have union with Christ. He is in the very presence of God the Father, the Holy of Holies as it were, And so when Ephesians 2 says we are seated with Him, it means that when through faith in Jesus, when we pray to God 
in the name of Jesus, wherever we are, we have access not to a temple made with hands. We have access to the very place, the very scene that, for example, Isaiah 6 reveals where the angels cry out, Holy, Holy, Holy. We, through faith in Christ, have access. Bold, reverent, humble, but bold access to this God who dwells in heaven. And the absolute promise that He will hear us when we pray. If we pray with clean hands and a pure heart, confessing our sin, if we pray with reverence, sincerely, He will hear us when we pray. Praise God. Let's pray together. Oh God in heaven, we recognize that you are great and lofty and exalted. We confess when we read a passage like this, a bit of our hearts are frightened. For suddenly, you who are seemingly so familiar to us, perhaps you seem a bit unfamiliar. And that is as it should be. For though we can know you truly and accurately, we will never know you fully. For you are holy God, most high. We pray that you would shape, first of all, our hearts and our thinking. We pray with with Solomon that you would cause our hearts to walk in your ways. Oh, have mercy on us. Because we are so prone to wander as we sing. The capacity for sin and idolatry in our hearts is, is, is so huge that we could be depressed by it. And yet, oh God, we look to you and we praise you that you are higher than our sin and our, our will. That you are sovereign and you are able to do what you want. And you are merciful and compassionate. So in the spirit of Solomon's prayer, we too pray that you would have mercy upon us. And we know that you have revealed that you want to be sought, you want to be found by those who seek you. Thank you, Father, that through the giving of your Son, that when we call and speak to you, we don't have to go to a priest, that we don't have to go to a certain place, but that where we are, through faith in Jesus Christ, when we pray in his name, we have an audience with the Most High God. What an awesome thing. Forgive us for all the times when we Blaspheme your name, thoughtlessly praying, mindlessly praying. Forgive us, we ask. Help us to be a people who know you, love you, and whose prayers are increasingly reflect not the passing whims and trends of the day we live in, but the deep paths of Scripture. We thank you that all your promises stand, that not one good word has fallen to the ground or ever will. So we ask now in Jesus' name and bless you. Amen.